Do please take a seat. So you definitely want a Bible open in front of you, unless you've memorized all 32 verses of the reading. And uh, they didn't open their Bibles at 8, and they looked confused. But there was also a weird bird in that window, and I think that that was distracting for them as well. So um, should the bird return, the Bible will help you. This weekend is the 100th anniversary of the armistice at the end of the Great War. And this was a conflict so immense, the charnel house of Flanders was so appalling that the author H.G. Wells described the First World War as the war to end all wars. But clearly he was wrong. Clearly battles are still fought. Clearly monsters still emerge. And Daniel explains to us the reason why. The conflicts on earth, he says, are manifestations of and part of a greater conflict in the heavens, a conflict of kingdoms. And while that rages on over our heads, the Christian hope is very simple. We know how it ends. We know which king wins in the end. And the reason why evil still abounds right now is because... As Winston Churchill once said, this is not the end. It was 1942, key turning point in the Second World War, when Churchill said, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. (laughs) I would say that, uh, thank you, Parliament laughed more loudly when he said it the first time. I would say that is exactly what Daniel chapter 11 is. It's not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. It's the bit before the bit before the end. And it is an encouragement to the people of God as they suffer under this spiritual warfare that it will end. It is another prophecy that we're looking at right now. It's a prophecy that is so detailed and so astonishingly accurate in the way that it unfolds that some scholars even believe it was made up after the event. They are, of course, quite wrong about that. Firstly, in a prophecy about such prophecies, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that prophets would prophesy exactly such prophecies. And they did. Uh, Secondly, we don't need to guess the date of the prophecy. In verse 1, you'll see it right there. The angel tells us the first year of Darius, 539 BC. And thirdly, in Matthew 24, Jesus agrees, which is kind of a big deal. Jesus says Daniel wrote Daniel, and that probably means that he did. So when the angel says ahead of time, verse 2, this is a prophecy about the future, And now I will show you the truth. What it means is, he did. The truth is that the truth came true. The angel is about to unfold to Daniel and to us reading it 500 years of future military history in incredible detail, and everything he says will happen, happened. Verse 2. We have to just go through really quickly. Verse 2. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. They did. Cyrus, Smerdis, Darius. And a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. He was Xerxes. And he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. He did. But, verse 3, a mighty king shall arise from a greater power. He did. It's Alexander the Great. 
Not that he lasted very long either. Verse 4 says, as soon as he, Alexander, has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds. And it was. Four generals take over from him. They break up the Greek empire into four parts, four, four regions, these four winds prophetically pointing to the four points of the compass, north, south, east, west. And two of these kings are of particular concern for the people of God. The king of the south, Ptolemy in Egypt, or Ptolemy, as it's more accurately pronounced. Uh, and the king of the north, Seleucus in Syria, are going to be oppressing the people of God from the north and the south. Israel will be caught in between for 500 years. They will be oppressed by the north and the south. The uh, identity of the kings of the east and the kings of the west are far less important historically. But if you're really interested, scholars and fans of 90s hip-hop alike all agree this is clearly Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. <laughs> Still others say Snoop Dogg or Cypress Hill, but uh, you, know, you can make up your own mind. East Coast, West Coast, there's always been this rivalry. Next... Uh, there's an alliance. Puff Daddy, actually, still others would say. It was, he changed his name to P. Diddy. Still doesn't make him prophetically the fulfillment of anything, I don't think. Next, uh, there's an alliance and a conflict prophesied in verse 6. And it just says, a daughter will be traded between kings, and she was. Ptolemy in the north uh, made peace with Antiochus in the south by offering his daughter Berenice in marriage and because she was really pretty, Antiochus was pleased. Uh, unfortunately, his existing wife was not. <laughs> she had them poisoned. Or as verse 6 puts it more poetically, they did not retain the strength of their arms, or, or legs, or faces, or any other body parts, I presume. Now, if you were the brother of a political pawn who had been pimped and poisoned by a Ptolemy with a silent P, how might you feel? Uh, verse 7 predicts, uh, not, uh, not too pleased. A branch from her roots, it says, that is a relative of hers, shall arise, he shall enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them, and he shall prevail. And he did, and he did, and he did, and he did. And verse 8 prophesies, he shall carry off to Egypt their gods, which, guess what? He did. In the ancient Near East, capturing someone's gods was a big deal. It was indicative of a total defeat on earth as it was in the heavens. They felt that the military conflict was a manifestation of a greater unseen spiritual conflict above. And I think what the angel is trying to show us is this guy just carries off these gods, sticks some clump of metal up his jumper and runs away with it like a rugby ball and gets away with it is that these gods are rubbish, these false gods. These false gods can be taken captive. They fade away. And the empires that worship them fade away. And anyone who puts their trust in things that fade away will also fade away with them. The lesson is immensely clear for believers. If things are going very badly in your life, if your life is fading away, if your home is in trouble, if your job is difficult, if your health is failing, do not despair. Do not put your faith in those things. But equally, if your life is going really well and you just feel like the king of Pittsburgh right now, 
We should never put our faith in anyone or anything around us, just in God. Empires rise and fall. Things come and go. Our faculties fade away. And God has known and God has shown this to be true from the beginning, from the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. And the angel continues now for about 500 years through a 500, uh, 250 years through a 500-year prophecy, uh, prophesied well in advance of all of this unfolding, and the angel continues, the battle continues. North and south will continue to fight, he says. They did. Israel will continue to be caught in between. It was. There will be attempts in Israel at self-salvation, there were. Look at verse 14. The angel says, in the midst of all of this, fearing that God has given up on them, perhaps, your own people shall lift themselves up. They're going to do something to save themselves. Being lifted up is an important biblical phrase or motif. It appears a lot in in Scripture. Most clearly being lifted up is is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who was lifted up uh, on the cross. Christ was, was raised on the cross. He was killed on the cross. And Uh, He did this as he died so that when we die, we might live with him. He rose to life after being raised on the cross, and we can when we trust in him as well. We don't need to lift ourselves up. We don't need to save ourselves. We have a God who is lifted up on our behalf. But Israel, 250 years through this period, is tired, it is worn down, and it seeks to save itself. So, every generation does this. Every generation wants some way of taking matters into their own hands. And like all attempts at self-salvation, verse 14 just says, they shall fail. And guess what? They did. Verse 16 says, the king of Syria shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. We just sing, you know, Matt Redmond says, time is in his hand. And our opening hymn, we said that God is the potentate of time. God holds these things in, their, in his hand, but these, these great kings think that somehow empires are in their grasp. He shall stand with destruction in his hand, he did, and then it gets worse. Because in verse 21, we're told, in his place, in the place of this awful person who was more awful than the awful person before him, who was more awful than all four awful people before him, a contemptible person shall arise. Someone even worse. He was. This is uh, like the sort of end of, of level baddie in a video game that looms right now. This is a really difficult character. This is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Uh, Epiphanes, remember Epiphany that we have on, on January the 6th? It's a day of, of the manifestation of God. It means manifest one, Epiphanes. So this, this king gives himself a nickname. He doesn't just take gods. He takes the name of God. He believes himself to be the very manifestation of God, Antiochus Epiphanes. Behind his back, they made up a rubbish joke about him. They changed the word Epiphanes to Epimenes. It means madman instead of God. It's not a very good joke, but most old, jo- old, old jokes aren't very good. But It was their own little act of rebellion behind his back, talking smack about him. But they were terrified of this guy. He believed himself to be the manifestation of God, believed himself to be able to control the destinies of anyone under his power. And he used a variety of tactics. The angel says these are some of the things he will do. Verse 21, flattering. 
with clever deals, sweeping away armies, verse 22, forming alliances, verse 23, getting rich, verse 24, and he did, and he did, and he did, and he did, but only, says verse 24, for a time. Now, this reference to time is incredibly important. There's a few references to time in the scripture, and whenever these references to time appear, we're being told that there is someone or something outside of time that controls time. These temporal powers are limited because their time is limited. Who or what is doing the limiting? It's just the very first hint in this scripture, a tiny hint at hope that there is someone or something greater out there who is keeping a lid on all of this evil. God is not absent. God is not passive. And even though these powers are immense and increasingly worse than the ones before them, every single one of them is in some way constrained. Their time is limited by something greater, no matter who they think they are. This is a lesson for believers today. If you feel under attack, if you are being bullied, if you're being manipulated or your kids are, if you're being abused or defrauded by somebody or slandered or slaughtered, if someone is out to get you in your life, at work or in your family or in your social circle, and it doesn't stop, what you need is a word of hope. If you see their car turning up and your heart leaps into your throat with a lump, uh, if you hear their voice and you tense up or you see their number flash up on your phone and you dread the call, you need to know that someone out there can do something about it. And if you've tried in your own strength and you failed, maybe you've tried to appease that person and found that you can't, and you've tried to avoid that person, but they keep seeking you out, and you've tried to confront that person, but they do not change, you need to know that God will deal with them in time, that it will end. One of the ways that God so easily deals with such forces is simply to allow them to experience the consequences of their own sin. You cannot take one of the Bible's numerous lists of vices and jot them down on a post-it note and turn them into a to-do list, checking each one of them off without experiencing a consequence at the end of this. And so as Antiochus IV Epiphanes, with his fat head, plots and schemes against the people of God, the angel says, in time, he also will be brought to book. He will be attacked. He will be done away with. Verse 25 says, those who eat his food shall break him. His own little coterie of apparatchiks and friends are going to stab him in the back at his own table. The people he's bribed and flattered and forced through fear to fawn at his table will be done away, will do away with him. And guess what? They did. Evil versus evil. Our enemies will eat themselves eventually. And the only thing that these forces have in common, the only one thing that they have in common Though they work against each other for their own ends, their only thing they have in common is their overarching hatred of God himself. It is no surprise, therefore, that they take out their hatred of God on the people of God. 
They go for the people of God. Uh, Fundamentally, verse 28 says, they are against the Holy Covenant. Do you remember that? Do you remember the Holy Covenant? We looked at it two weeks ago. Remember all the animals on the hill and the blood? If you weren't here, you can get the podcast online from two weeks ago. uh, We had 50 listeners. It's now our second largest congregation. So go online and have a listen. Uh, the, The covenant is the deal between God and his people. That thing where God said, if they come against you, they come against me, says God. And so as people hate God, they come against the people of God, and they seek, I think, to break up the people and the God. The enemies, the kingdom of this world, Satan and his forces and his human uh, followers will do anything to disrupt and to despoil the worship of God. Anything to rip away heartfelt worship, like our opening hymn. Real worship where people experience the presence of God is painful to the eyes and painful to the ears of the enemies of God. And they hate to see God's people happy. They hate to see joy. They hate to see manifestations of the Holy Spirit. They hate to see people being broken and remade in the image of God and approaching the Lord's table with tears in their eyes because the Spirit is imminent to them. And if fear doesn't work, they can't make you afraid to come and worship, they'll try something else. Flattery. Verse 30 says, they will, this is all a prophecy, they will pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. They're going to give some sort of special attention to people who give up on God. And verse 32, seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. There are earthly prizes on offer for those who compromise their faith. History shows Antiochus even managed to get the high priest to support him. The main minister of Israel falls for this. Don't put your faith in a minister. Don't put your faith in a priest. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Ministers go off the rails all the time. So worship Jesus, not some man or woman of the cloth. And in a well-organized culture, a culture that is eminently hostile to Christianity. It is so tempting for leaders to compromise their faith, to dial it down, to water it down, to do what they need to do to keep culture happy and to keep their heads down, to collude with the forces of evil. Dodgy deals are done by churches all the time to keep the show on the road. Anti-covenants are formed. Pacts are made with the enemy. Well, let's just tone it down a little bit, shall we? Let's have a little bit less Jesus. Let's just stop saying it this way, shall we? Let's just shave that a little bit, shall we? Let's tweak this a bit, shall we? Let's just not include this, and let's start including that, and let's say it a little bit differently. Let's nuance and tweak what it is that we believe until it becomes more palatable to the culture around us. And the angel prophesies this, no matter how hard we try, no matter how flabby and weak we make our faith, no matter how much we try to appease the culture of the day, we cannot. Even a polluted and a weak version of Christianity is far too much for the enemy to bear. He will always, always want more. So verse 31 prophesies, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. Eventually, they will just try to stop 
worship of God entirely. I'm just going to take away your toys so you can't worship anymore. And then having done that, having taken away authentic worship, they will then seek to supplant authentic worship with something else, something filthy, something that profanes God, some other God. And they did, and they did. It says they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Uh, They did. They set up in the temple a shrine to another God, to Zeus, in fact, Uh, Many scholars believe that the the sacrifices to Zeus in the temple were doubly appalling because it was common when sacrificing to him in in those rites to use, of all animals, swine. We had a butchered pig to the Greek god Zeus on the altar in Yahweh's temple. That's how awful it was. Literally, the most abominable thing you could imagine for a Jewish person is prophesied right here. The epitome of an unclean animal sacrificed to the epitome of an unclean God in the very place where Yahweh dwelt in physical presence amongst them on an altar that was dedicated exclusively for his worship alone. And you know what is even more shocking than that? Even more shocking than the fact that they cut up pigs on God's altar in a temple and it was the high priest doing it. You know what's even more shocking? No one noticed. Like they somehow didn't see it. The angel says, God's people will fall for it. God's people will not notice just how egregiously inappropriate their worship had become. Even though they were told in advance by the angel to expect it, they still didn't see it. Blind to the fact that they're not worshipping God anymore. Stage by stage by stage, there's a complete inversion of the faith. Um, Just imagine the high priest. uh, His name was Mattathias. Imagine Mattathias showing new members around the temple on a special new members day like this one. Um, You know, when, when, when new members join a church, they look around, and there are certain visual clues that tell you what kind of a church it is. Uh, so the first thing you look at is, is the Bible. What version do they use? Is it one of the dodgy ones or is it a decent one like ours? Um, who is it that sits on the front pew and has got rid of all the other books and just has four Bibles in a row? That's a holy person. Um, when we come into church, we start to look at maybe the music and the bulletins. Are they Christ-centered hymns that are sung or just painful dirges about something else? Uh, When we look at the program, what's the children's ministry like? Are there baby-changing facilities? How good is the coffee? Do you serve cake? You know, we start to look around at at things that make us think, yeah, this is the kind of church for me or or not the kind of church for me. Imagine the high priest doing a new member's day and showing around people and saying, oh, do come in, have a look around at all of our stuff. Here's Here's the candelabra up here and, you know, here are the incense bowls that we use in worship and, you know, look above you, see these great beams of acacia wood and we've got cedar and we've got pillars of gold and here's the holy of holies. You can't go in there and outside here in the temple courtyard we have the altar and, and there's a massive butchered pig to Zeus and someone going, eh? Like, excuse me, sir, is that not just a little bit demonic? What are you guys doing? with a massive butchered pig to Zeus in the temple. They don't even see it, says the angel. Something so incredibly appalling, and they don't even notice. This 
is how ungodly they will become, says the angel. And they did. So that's just the background. I've run out of time for for the actual sermon. We don't have enough time (laughs) for a sermon. I even made Doug chop the last three verses of the reading off. Um, So, yeah, sorry about that. What I'm going to do is just make a few simple points. And uh, you can make your own sermon at home. So it's like coming around to my house for dinner and me just dumping a pile of raw vegetables on you. Um, Sorry. At least I washed them, I will say to you. So I want you to go home. I want you to make your own sermon. And then if someone says to you, how was the sermon? Uh, You'll have to say, what, it was awesome, because I preached it. You know, so uh, here you go. Uh, Your first point in your sermon that you preached to yourself when you get home could be this. Uh, You might want to take notes. Uh, One, God knew in advance every incredible facet and detail of 500 years of complex military history. We haven't even gone into the half of it. This is just the Reader's Digest version. So if all you take away from your own sermon is point number one, God is sovereign over time. He said he would do it and he did it. That is a fine point indeed to take away. It is a remarkable thing that we are just seeing right here. Uh, But there's much, much more. And if uh, you want to move on from the homily to the five-point sermon, there's a few more for you uh, as you make your own. Secondly, it's this. Uh, We may feel defeated in the moment by fear, but every enemy fails just as the last enemy will fail in the end. He is defeated. Thirdly, the king of this world, the enemy, will do anything he can to get you to give up on God before the end anything at all. He'll try fear, he'll try flattery, he'll try false deals, often all three at the same time. I mean, have you noticed how often fun stuff comes up on a Sunday morning? Have you noticed how often a child throws a temperature and gets sick on a Saturday night? Have you noticed how many schedule clashes there are in the week with your small group that you might be in? That's not a coincidence. It's designed to disrupt and despoil your worship. And trusting the kings and trusting the things of this world is every bit as much of a mistake as fearing them. Fear, flattery, false deals. Fourth, if we take our eyes off God, if we get wobbly and we stop reading scripture and we start just doing snippets of this and sermonettes and a bit of nonsense that we've made up ourselves, shockingly awful things that are unthinkable to us right now will become normative for the next generation. All sorts of things that we think are wrong will suddenly seem okay when we take our eyes off Jesus. And the last point of all is this, the fifth point. Maybe you've already asked it of yourself. If God knows all of this stuff, and God controls all of this stuff, And God is so awesome that he is able to tell an angel, to tell a man, to write down 500 years of detailed future history. Why not just deal with it all now? Why not just do the ending at the start? The answer comes in verse 32. It is because the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. 
The reason why God doesn't just click his fingers, press fast forward, and get to the end right now is because God, in the meantime, has a job for you. God has a purpose for you right now. You see, because Christ has defeated death and risen again from the dead and given us his Holy Spirit as a seal for the end and empowered us with his Holy Spirit until the end, we have his power now. We have the power of God within us. And God wants to enlist you into his kingdom to bring his kingdom. God wants to use you to bring about the end. That's why it hasn't ended yet. Because we haven't done it yet. Beth Moore, not, not Beth Moore from our congregation, the famous one on TV, says this. Why is it he has us do it? If God could do it for us. God says, here's the deal. I know I can make people and principalities cower, but you don't know that you can yet. I can trample down high places because I have a high foot, says God. What is going to be wild is when I use your foot to do it. The people of God have been called to advance the kingdom of God. And that is what we're going to see next week as we get to the beginning of the end, and then the week after that to the end. The people of God have a job to do. Let us pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that prophetically through the angel you foretold 500 years of detailed military history, war after war. And we thank you, Lord God, that there will be a war to end all wars when you return. So, Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit and manifesting the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, would you send us out from this place to be disciples and soldiers of Christ, to advance the kingdom, to stand firm in our faith, to preach good news to the lost, to proclaim the gospel, a gospel of grace and a gospel of love and a gospel of exclusive worship of you and not of self-salvation, but a gospel of of glory and a gospel of love and a gospel of hope. Send us out with that message on our lips, Lord. And come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Amen.